An Erios production. This is the Cardamom Pod, Kajal Magazine's culture podcast, hosted by me, Nadia Agrawal, and made in partnership with Erios Network. Our last episode of the season, I wanted to talk about food. Food is one of the most politicized aspects of our global society, but it's not often looked at like that. If you think about it, nearly every culture and religion has rules about what food can be eaten and when, what food is foregone and when. Who eats what and why is a source of distinction for the different peoples of our world. When you get deeper into it, you think about what food is available to different communities and how. Whether we're thinking about who farms the food and the potentially exploitative economies therein, including but not limited to migrant and child laborers, the indigenous or mass production models they use, or even who cooks the food and how they're treated, it's impossible to think of food as separate from any body of politics. It intersects with labor justice, feminism, globalism, environmentalism, racial justice, and more. Food writing is similarly a microcosm for our society. If we can see all the politics we grapple with every day in the concept of food and the physical creation of food, we can see it too in how food is covered in magazines and newspapers. Food writing is preoccupied with concepts of authenticity, cultural ownership, and identity. I feel very aware of the food media landscape partially because of how food writing flows into other subjects I love, labor, women's rights, heritage essays. I'm also aware of food media because it feels like the industry is getting rocked by new scandals every year. Whether it's how major food corporations like Starbucks exploit child laborers, or which chefs are being called out during Me Too, or most recently, which food magazines are grossly underpaying their staff of color. Whatever the world is grappling with, so is the food industry. This can be said about music too, or film, or culture at large. Food writing is no longer, and maybe never was, just restaurant reviews. It's about one of the most political things we encounter every day. This week I'm joined by award-winning food writer Mayuk Sen to talk about his work and his new book detailing the lives of American food's forgotten mothers. Don't go away. I don't want you anymore, but I'm blind. I wish that you were here. I'm here with writer Mayuk Sen, whose new book, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America, is coming out in November of this year. You can find his writing on food and film in a bunch of places, including Food 52, Taste, The Atlantic, and Film Comment. Thank you so much for joining us, Mayuk. Thank you so much for having me, Nadia. So I'm, I know you get this a lot. I've read so many of your interviews now to be able to prepare for this one. But like reading your work from your film critique to your food profiles and considering your new book as well, you have a penchant for focusing on lost or forgotten characters or even possibly underhyped people. What attracts you to these types of stories? Yeah, that's a great question. One I get often, but I'm still, uh, you know, perfecting the answer to it, so to speak. Uh, I think... It really has to do with two factors. Uh, one is the fact that, um, and I hate to kind of commodify myself in this way, but I'm a queer person of color and that, uh, you know, the realities of living as a queer person of color um, in America uh, mean that, you know, you get 
used to marginalization in many forms. You know, you become accustomed, or at least I have become accustomed to being discriminated against uh, by powerful people, uh, having them not listen to me, having them dismiss me offhand rather than engage with me or, you know, um, want to engage with my talent in any way. And um, I don't, I don't want to say that to sound big-headed or anything like that, you know, but um, I, I'm just so used to kind of, uh, you know, the people who matter, uh, like, overlooking me in some way, you know, and I felt uh, that sense of marginalization my whole life, you know, so when I first got to food media almost five years ago, I was very much like, damn, I don't fit in here at all, you know. Um, my first job um, in food media was as a staff writer at a company called Food 52. Uh, and at that point in uh, 2016, the editorial team was all white women and me. So I just stuck out like a sore thumb, you know, like this queer Bengali kid who is, I think, 24 or something like that, you know, super young, knew very little about food, was just writing from a completely different center of gravity than everyone else. Uh, and so I tried to kind of listen to the sense of alienation that I felt day in and day out in that job and, you know, uh, let that guide me towards subjects who, you know, were also in the food world, uh, whether that's in the past or the present, and, uh, you know, kind of excavate their stories or bring them back to life in some way. Um, and I think the second reason why I'm so attracted to those stories, and I'm sorry to begin on such a dour, depressing note, uh, is... Uh, the fact that, you know, I've had a lot of loss in my life and probably the uh, one of the most more recent and notable ones is uh, the loss of my father uh, almost four years ago now in June 2017. Uh, so he had been sick for over half my life with various illnesses, but uh, lung cancer is the thing that took him ultimately. And I was 25 when he uh, died and, you know, I had been anticipating that loss for many years, but still preparing yourself for that kind of loss does not really soften its blow in any way. Uh, and so I felt as though, you know, I was sometimes writing these stories about people who had been forgotten or misunderstood by the food establishment and the white food establishment in particular, because I was maybe anticipating the loss of my father. And then when he did die in June 2017. Uh, I felt as though I had almost greater clarity of purpose in that regard, um, and it made me want to pursue those stories even more. So, you know, there's something about grief as this like clarifying force in terms of really realizing like mortality for like what it is, you know. Um, and I I totally understand what you're saying. Like when my dad passed away a couple years ago. Something that I really felt keenly, which I did not expect to feel at all, was um, the loss of his knowledge. You know, like all the, you know, spent like years amassing like knowledge about how to fix up cars, about music, about culture, all of these things that he handed down to me and my brother. And to lose him as the source of that was like much bigger than I thought it would be. Um, and so I think I understand in kind of like immortalizing the stories of people who were titans in the industry or who had important stories to share that you have to kind of commit it to paper somewhere because even even that story that you tell isn't the extent of their lives it's like scratching the surface in a lot of ways and so yeah that that makes total sense to me yeah um i should say first of all i'm so sorry for your loss and that we share this loss you know uh you know losing yeah. 
losing a parent in your 20s is never easy. I'm sorry if I cut you off there. Um, but No, just like fatherless people club, right? <laughs> it's the dead dad club is a, is not a fun club to be part of, you know, but um No, it's 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 also an interesting thing. I don't know if you experienced this. I think especially being like having a, an Indian dad specifically is like such a a specific experience, I would say. Like losing an Indian dad is also like the loss of like kind of sometimes a more gray life like it's not all good and it's not all bad and there's like a lot of things that are worth like unpacking in therapy for sure but like like losing that that kind of character is like it is a it's a strange thing that I don't think culturally we're prepared for yeah I definitely was not I will say and uh, you know it's so interesting that you bring up this idea of uh wanting to write someone's story down before they uh, are no longer around to tell it to you because I definitely felt that way after my dad passed away because he was he was a noxial, um, you know, in his college days, you know, he's, he's from West Bengal and uh, he had a lot of stories about, you know, his political commitments and activities back then that I wanted to know so much about and my parents, they had an arranged marriage so there's only so much that my mom knows about that time in his life and everything that he experienced, you know, and I so wish I had been uh, mature enough uh, to really listen to and record those stories while he was still with us, you know, now they kind of died right along with him, Um, especially because I believe a lot of his friends from that period in his life have also passed away, Uh, and so, you know, it it sucks, and so that's, that's, it kind of uh, hardens my resolve to write uh the stories that i do write you know whether they are posthumous profiles or uh profiles of living figures who belong to marginalized populations you know i want to make sure that um i am writing these stories down and committing them to a public and historical record in some way so that you know 20 years down the line they will be part of that uh, larger history uh, culinary history or film history my experience in writing profiles, and I haven't written that many, but I've written a few, and there is a sort of connection that you create with the subject of your profile. Whether or not they have asked for it or invited it, like, you do kind of have this sort of sense of, like, being somehow their child to some extent, like, not not in, in a, like, a, in a strange or perverted way, but just in a, like, that you hold something of their legacy in your hands, and, like, that you are molding that legacy like you know you're publishing it somewhere so it can be committed to the internet's memory or whatever it is and like I have really felt that keenly and I wonder what that experience is like for you yeah it's interesting because I uh you know before I got to food media I was very much of the opinion that you know uh profile writers should not uh operate in service of their story subjects you know they should adopt a more adversarial approach to uh, their storytelling. Uh, But that really applies to celebrity uh, profiles, I believe. You know, when it comes to profiles of figures who, you know, belong to marginalized groups, like I just mentioned, you know, I think um, oftentimes I try to find connections with them in some way. uh, And, you know, whether they're living figures or deceased ones, you know, um, it's a nice kind of uh, feeling, a sense of just I guess camaraderie, you could say, that you develop with those subjects. Uh, And I try to fold that sense of tenderness and empathy uh, into my work as much as I can, you know, because I think that 
when I was coming up, uh, you know, four or five years ago or whatever, and I'm still coming up, obviously, but, you know, when I was even younger than I am now, uh, I definitely, I think that I adopted this kind of um, internet writing tone, so to speak, of kind of being snarky and a little thoughtless, glib, all that kind of stuff, because that was just so in, like, you know, five or six years ago, let's say. It's like uh, the MFA voice equivalent, right? But for the internet. Totally, yeah. yes. And I have completely tried to shed that, uh, you know, thoughtlessness, especially because, you know, part of it also is the fact that, you know, I've been on the other side of this sometimes too, and I would hate for someone to not see the sincerity of my intent, if that makes sense, as a writer, you know? I would want to make sure that if someone is profiling me, uh, you know, they do see that basic sincerity of intent. And if they do critique me, it's a thoughtful and informed one. Because I definitely don't want any profile of me to just be, you know, like a, you know, PR ego stroking exercise or anything like that, you know. But uh, I do want to make sure that profile writer sees me for who I am. And by that same token, I want to, as a writer, you know, make sure I'm seeing my subjects in the way that they want to be seen. What you said about, like, the adversarial approach to profile writing seems to, like, just sort of stink of, like, white industry. Like, in terms of, like, what, like, the sort of gonzo journalism or, like, the kind of, like, I don't give a fuck about your celebrity, like, had to tell Gucci, but, like, you know, totally lampooning you in the text, like, profile is, it does feel like it belongs to a certain part of the industry, but, like, you can't really apply that same token to, like, more sensitive or vulnerable characters that you're taking on right it just like doesn't work also because very rarely are you interviewing a person of color or profiling a person of color who has reached that level of celebrity that you need to take them down a few notches like they are much more regular people for the uh, most part absolutely yeah they, i mean they face so many systemic barriers to uh, achieving that kind of uh, success and hyper visibility that warrants um, a more critical approach definitely yeah I would love to talk to you more about some of your film critique because I feel like every time you do put out a film piece, it feels like a treat because we get so many of your food pieces, which are great, but I really, like, I loved your obit for Irfan Khan. Like, I actually keep coming back to it. I find it really just, like, na it nails him completely and it's really soft and delicate and then all your remembrances for Thabu are also just really, really great. And I think also because you're doing this sort of translation effort for, um, these like Western magazines where you're writing about these titans of the Hindi film cinema industry for like a Western audience specifically, or like, you know, you're putting it in Western publications. And I'm wondering about that effort of like, you know, I think that as people who grew up with that, those movies and stuff, like we have a different perspective on those people. Like we don't think of them as necessarily separate from the celebrities that we get in America. And yet you do have to kind of explain who they are to people who are uninitiated. Totally, and that's a huge challenge whenever I write uh, these film pieces. First of all, I want to say thank you so much uh, for the kind words about the Irfan Khan obituary. Uh, I wrote it in like eight hours, and I was obviously... I mean, that is probably one of the celebrity deaths that hit me hardest, along with Sri Devi's death, obviously, because I talk about Sri Devi Sorry. constantly. Not oh, the Bushri, oh, Devi. I always <laughs> confuse them. I don't know why, but like, oh, that's so embarrassing. It's totally okay. okay. Don't even worry about it. No, I love Tabu too, but not as much as Sri Devi, but I don't it's love It's the moon face, you know? I just find them so similar. Anyway. No, 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 totally. I completely, uh, you're not the first person I've encountered who's uh, uh, confused them. Um, but, you know, 
Irfan Khan's death really hit me so hard. And when you're working um, under such a tight deadline like I was during that day, I remember I had to like file another piece that week as well. So I was just like, my mind was going crazy. Um, yeah, those manic sessions are real. They're, they're really tough. Uh, but I was kind of asking myself, like, what is it about this man and his work that I respond to just so viscerally, you know? And I think back to his performance in The Namesake. And, you know, The Namesake, there's a lot one could say about that film and its shortcomings and its merits. I definitely do think that Irfan Khan and his performance is by far one of um, its merits. Like, he is just phenomenal. He's not Bengali, and yet he reminds me so much of my father. And so... Um, not to make this all tidy and full circle here, but I definitely was thinking about my dad a lot when I was writing that article. You know, I was like, what is it about that man uh, that I miss so much? You know, his mannerisms, the way that he moved through the world and, you know, the way he carried himself. And what is it that, you know, from him that I saw in this performance that a stranger gave, you know? And so that's why, you know... Uh, I decided to kind of end that piece on his performance, The Namesake, which um, is truly just so careful and beautiful, you know, versus Tabu, you know, I love her so, so much. I think she's a phenomenal actress, but uh, I don't think that she nails uh, being a Bengali uh, woman um, in quite the, you know, in the way that is familiar to me, um, you know, versus Irfan Khan totally nails it, uh, being a bong. Um, and when it comes to, uh, you know, pieces I've written on Sri Devi, especially for uh, places like Film Comment, you know, which have a mostly non-Indian audience, an uh, American audience, so to speak, you know, there's so much translation work that is involved there, uh, because, you know, Sri Devi, unlike Irfan Khan, did not have uh, a big uh, presence in American or British cinema, you know, so with Irfan Khan, it was easy because you could point to a lot of the more, uh, you know, thankless, but still, you know, recognizable roles that he played um, in uh, Western cinema and television versus Sri Devi, you know, there was very little you could kind of point to uh, for global cinephiles, you know. Uh, and so one thing that I wanted to make sure was very clear is that Sri Devi was not just a Bollywood star because I think that, you know, three... <laughs> You know, yesterday was a three-year anniversary of her death, uh, you know, February 24th. And uh, I remember when she died three years ago, there were so many headlines, both in the North Indian media, but also in the global media, that positioned her purely as a Bollywood star, uh, when in fact she had done extensive work in South Indian cinema, especially Tamil, Telugu, and uh, some Malayalam, and a little bit of Kannada. And she was a star. She was the star in Tamil and Telugu cinema, you know? And I wanted to make sure that as I was writing about her and her performance in English Vinglish, uh, which probably might be the most recognizable to Western audiences because it screened at Toronto International Film Festival, I wanted to make sure that, you know, that was not lost in translation, uh, that, you know, she did have, you know, she did get her start in South Indian cinema and she was a bona fide superstar there. And that's where she kind of owned her acting chops, uh, and, you know, uh, then something happened where she migrated north to, uh, Bombay and did all these Hindi films that kind of misused her talent in some way, but it was a lot of explaining, you know, but one thing I try to do when I write these sorts of pieces is ask myself, like, yes, okay, you do need to, you know, contextualize for, 
you know, a white American reader, potentially, you know, who might be, uh, you know, um, a reader of this publication. But at the same time, you want to make sure you are not phrasing everything in a way that feels off or uh, devoid of nuance for an Indian reader, you know? And so that's what I was kind of, that was a calculus in my head as I was writing. I was like, okay, how do I frame this in a way that feels true and complete for an Indian reader, South Indian reader, who is extensively familiar with Devi's work, you know, in the South. Uh, so it's a challenge, definitely, because you don't want to over-explain and, like, hold your reader's hand too much and everything like that, you know? But I find, I find a profile so difficult a medium because there are so many different ways you can do it. And we talked a little bit about, like, the sort of adversarial aspect or the more, like, getting to know somebody sort of thing and, like, I think like, so I wrote a profile a couple years back and I'm thinking about this now because the way that I positioned the piece as well was about dads and like South Asian dads and Indian dads specifically. And I was interviewing um, Anupam Kerr and it was a really difficult piece to write because I was trying to juggle the story about Anupam Kerr being everywhere, being in like every single film, being a bit actor, a character actor who was always someone's dad, you know, and like the sort of the way that that kind of creates a softening of his image because you always think of him as like the bumbling bald-headed dad who's like always just getting into trouble who cares a lot about his daughters you know we think of him and bend it like Beckham and stuff but then if you actually like juxtapose that with his really his politics right supporting the BJP kind of being pro Modi you know maybe like pro soft fascism kind of like even when I was talking to him and I was trying to ask him these questions, which is really hard to do when you're talking to someone who's like, not only like culturally your elder, but is also like, you know, a mega giant star is like zipping to his next film premiere while he's on the phone with you. And the whole time he was also calling me like Miss Ugrawal, like something like he was, it was so, it was such a strange experience, right? Because I was like, okay, I have to ask him about like going off and earned up the Roy. I have to ask him about his politics. And at the same time, knowing that like when I, tell my parents, oh, I was talking to Anupam Kerr, telling my grandparents, like, they're going to flip their lids, they're going to be so excited. There's all these, like, things that you have to think about, which I feel like, like, comes with any kind of celebrity profile, but especially comes, I think, when we get the opportunity to write about something so close to home, which I don't think is very often, typically, and, like, it requires a lot of us to to make those things happen. Like, I would never really get assigned a story about Anupam Kerr, right? Like, I would have to go out and pursue it. And that also adds to, like, the anxiety around interviewing him, right? So I, I was just thinking about that because in when Irfan Khan passed away, like you said, it did feel like losing a father figure. And then when Anupam Kerr came out with his brand of politics, it also felt like losing a father figure um, because, like, you're seeing the sort of this, like, this, like, flattening of a nuanced experience. And it can be really hard as well when you write the profile because you need to angle these these people specifically. You need to, like, sort of create the tagline for them. And, of course, that creates a certain tone that you have to live up to. And so, like, for mine, it was supposed to be ironic. And then everyone read it as sincere. When I was like, oh, like, the South Asian, like, he's, like, South Asian diaspora kids, like, dad. And it's like, well, yeah, because he also has the shitty politics to go along with it. Like, that's that's the joke and everyone's like you platform like a BJP supporter and I was like sure I also got him to admit that like there was a problem with lynching in India and no like no journalist has done that yet so like let's (laughs) I 
I'm kind of just like riffing mostly because I have such a sense of like mea culpa around this, <laughs> this, this I totally interview, get you. <laughs> it, it's really hard, definitely. I will say that, you know, there, I won't name specific figures, but it's definitely been uh, hard to part with actors whose politics are just so indefensible and abhorrent, you know, in, in Hindi cinema and in, you know, other um Right, because so many of... Bollywood stars are, like, in the pocket of, you know, the majority government. Like, yes. all of them came, you know, every kind of nationalist action that happens in India, any kind of demonstration of, like, you know, war games or, like, response to Pakistan, a plane comes into Indian territory. Like, the, the vitriolic response of Indian film stars is really scary, actually. It feels like they're all bots. Like, they all have kind of the same language that they use in their tweets. Yeah, no, they mobilize, you know. Uh, we saw this happen a few weeks ago uh, with quite a few film personalities, and it was very, very alarming, you know. Um, I will say that... Uh, when I watch a Bollywood cinema now, you know, I uh, try to watch it as critically as possible because I, you know, I know that um, so much of it is uh, just, what's the word, I guess, so many stars and directors, producers are very cozy with uh, the ruling party, you know, let's just say that. And uh, it's, uh, it, sometimes that's very obvious uh, when you look at what is on the screen, if that makes sense, you know? Um, so it, it, it makes for a lot of disconcerting uh, viewing experiences, definitely. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a parallel in the American cinema complex as well, right? Like, the amount of propaganda films that have come out of, like, Hollywood when it comes to, like, sort of pro-Iraq war, pro-war on terror pro-military, pro-police, like, all of that is sort of similar, but we don't really criticize it, or we're not sort of, like, getting to the same dystopian level of, like, every single famous film star tweeting effectively the same thing on the same day during the same hour using the same hashtag. Like, that's, like, a level of, like, hive mind that we haven't reached yet, but, like, we still see it. Like, I mean, you think of, like, the John Krasinski's and the Chris Pratt's who end up in all of these films kind of selling the same story, even, like, the Dominic Cooper... American Sniper type movie, which was extremely awful um, and de dehumanizing. So, like, I mean, we, we get it, like, everywhere. So it's kind of a strange thing to, like, feel like India is separate because it's not separate. But I think we feel it really clearly because it's like, oh, shit, this was a good thing and now it's ruined. <laughs> like, Absolutely. I just wanted to watch Priyanka Chopra, like, dance around. I didn't want to think about her awful politics. Uh, right. Oh, man. Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's a real challenge when it comes to writing about uh, Hindi cinema in particular for Western audiences, you know, you don't want to uh, skirt a lot of these uh, nuances, you know, when you are um, writing about them for non-Indians. Uh, and it's a real challenge. I will say one thing that's helped me uh, is, <laughs> you know, my dad was one of those Bengali cinephiles, you know, and so as a result, he kind of wired uh, into me this um, skepticism of Bollywood, you know, um, which I think I've tried to carry with me uh, throughout my life. And it's kind of informs my writing. And that sounds so gross, you know, potentially, like, you know, to, it's almost like, I don't mean to flaunt any sense of cultural superiority or anything like that, because I'm not casting value judgments on these movies. But it's more like, I've just always been very skeptical of the Bollywood machine, you know, and so um, it's interesting to... <sighs> I know a lot of people in my generation, they love movies like K3G, Kuch Kuch Hota Hai, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All those Yashraj movies, uh, which I never responded to. All those Karan Johar movies. Exactly, yes, yes. So many Keijo movies, et cetera. And, you know, even like, 
you know, I am the biggest Shidevi stan who lives, and yet, uh, like, I definitely am. Um, but, you know, growing up, I was conditioned uh, to not love her as much as I do now because of movies like Johnny and Lamhe, you know, which, um, you know, there's a lot I can say about Lamhe, and I actually do think it really showcases her talent uh, very nicely. But, uh, you know, back then, I, I was too young and naive to see it, you know. So there's some unlearning I'm doing as well, you know, <laughs> of, uh, yeah. you know, what my dad taught yeah. me. There's definitely, like, um, kind of the same things here. There's, like, definitely, like, a tabloid cottage industry of like rumor mongering and like uh i don't know there are a lot of people that we grew up ta being taught to like dislike or to like look down on or think badly of or whatever right and it's interesting now to like revisit these movies like i mean it's hard to say right like vivek oberoi for example like he was such a star and then he disappeared and it created all this like stuff like oh i swear your fries she's an awful woman and like all of this stuff but then it's kind of like this is actually a completely fucked up industry that still uses a casting couch, that still relies on nepotism, that's still, like, funded largely by, like, shadowy orgs, by the government. Like, we know which movies are fronted by the mafia. Like, we know all of that, right? So, like, you can't, like, go into it and think that it's somehow a pure thing. But it's, like, it's kind of funny. It's, like, it's sort of having its own Monica Lewinsky, like, rebrand in a lot of ways. Like, where we're, like, kind of actually thinking critically about who these people were in the 90s and, like, where politics have progressed to now. But... Yeah, it's a strange exactly. thing. I actually have, like, largely lost my appetite, I think, for Hindi films. Like, I don't know where when that happened, but it's just kind of, like, something has become more plastic about it, more manufactured about it than it used to be. And it was always manufactured, of course, right? Like, there's no way a woman in, like, a chiffon sari should be on top of the Alps dancing. <laughs> completely manufactured, right? But, like, I just, I'm, like, feeling now, like, there's something being lost in I think this next generation of of actors who are largely like the kids of older actors and like grandchildren of like you know the original actors and stuff and there's also such a moving away from the origins of the industry right like I was watching Shalom Bollywood about the original film heroines um and I, I felt such a like it was much like a golden age of Hollywood kind of documentary almost right like okay, you're looking at the people who created the foundation for this industry. And it felt so unfamiliar. It felt so, like, alien now to, like, what we're seeing today. And I'm not trying to be, like, oh, like, reject modernism, like, embrace <laughs> traditionalism, but, like, it, there's something about it that does feel like, I think there's something changing, and I think it's moving more towards, like, television, and we're seeing new mediums pop up and really, like, gain traction. Mm -hmm. But, like, I haven't watched a, like, a contemporary Bollywood film in a long time. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that um, nepotism is <laughs> um, a big issue. Let's just uh, let's put it as simplistically as possible uh, in Bollywood right now. And uh, I don't know if it was as glaring as uh, you know it is now. Um, back in like the '90s or so, because you know you had stars like Karisma Kapoor back then too. You know the Kapoor family has always been around. There have always been. Uh, nepo kids so to speak you know populating the industry but i think the deal now... kids everyone yeah. yes exactly yeah Dharma's children etc etc so many of them yet um you know now it feels especially glaring and uh it's interesting to see the rise of so many um you know men and women who are the si younger siblings of established actors or daughters you know like Sri Devi's daughter john b kapoor you know is uh you know at it and there's 
it's hard, you know? It does feel uh, a little more manufactured than, uh, you know, Bollywood films in previous decades, you know? I will say that um, the Bollywood films that I did grow up watching uh, mostly for were from the 70s, and I think, uh, in my mind at least, I think that a lot of Bollywood cinema kind of went a little downhill starting in the 80s, you know? Uh, of course, you had such wonderful actors in Hindi cinema like Smita Patil and Shabana Azmi, etc., you know, but I think the quality of films in general just kind of, uh, or popular films, started to deteriorate um, quite a bit uh, beginning then. Uh, and I don't know, I, I feel like in the, like, in the previous decade, like in the 2010s or whatever, uh, there were quite a few movies that, you know, uh, seemed a bit better and more watchable and more well acted and everything like that. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I think the past few years have been kind of troubling, especially because of the nepotism stuff. And I know nepotism was a big part of the uh, public discourse, for lack of a better term, last year after the death of Sushant Singh Rajput. And uh, that mm. obviously, you know, unleashed just a torrent of uh, horrendous uh, misogynistic discourse that was also very unsympathetic to those who do struggle with mental illness. Um, but I think that whole um, episode uh, exposed a lot of the fault lines within Bollywood and the discourses surrounding it, you know? Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think that like my, my response is just to disengage as much as I can. You know? <laughs> truly, truly. Um, I wanted to ask you about your book. Now that we're like nine eight months out like how are you feeling it's so exciting because you i know you've been working on it for a few years like i've been hearing whisperings of it and of course like your cover's been revealed recently which is very exciting Thank you. like how are you feeling uh i mean i feel like throwing up all the time you know <laughs> i'm just super nervous uh so yeah just to um explain for listeners who might not know um so um my book uh, which you said is called tastemakers seven immigrant women who revolutionized food in america it's coming out from the W.W. Norton Company in uh, November of this year. And it's a group biography of seven different women, obviously, um, who all of them were immigrants to America. Uh, five of them are deceased um, and two of them are still alive. And so, you know, through this, uh, through these biographical essays, I want to kind of, you know, um, build a larger arc and narrative surrounding, you know, um, or I want to interrogate the very notion of what quote-unquote immigrant food is in this country, you know, because I think that uh, after um, the 2016 election, we saw, or I at least saw from my little perch in a food media, a lot of kind of um, concerning uh, liberal narratives surrounding immigrants and food that felt so patronizing and so dehumanizing ultimately, you know, kind of always uh, positioning immigrants as, uh, you know, someone, people who exist for the gratification of the consumer. And the consumer is uh, more often than not a white, affluent liberal. And I wanted to kind of demolish that, um, you know, with as much detail as possible, which is why I went with these biographical essays. But yeah, um, so I've been working on the book since November 2018. That's when I sold the book to Norton. Uh, and you know, book writing is um, a very isolating experience, uh, far more isolating than any other project I've ever undertaken. Uh, and, you know, teaching yourself how to sustain a narrative over 10,000 words or so is just, you know, it's very difficult. Uh, but, you know, 
I finally, you know, with the cover reveal just a few days ago, I was starting to feel like, okay, damn, it's real, you know, it's happening, you know, uh, and finally people are going to see this. Uh, and it's interesting to think about, you know, a book as opposed to an article because a book, um, you know, ideally lives for so much longer than some dinky article that you write, you know, uh, um, so this is going to be a lot of people's introduction to me and my work. And uh, I just want to make sure I'm putting my best foot forward, you know, so lots of sleepless nights and I'm sure I'll have many more in the months to come, you know, but I, I just need to find something to stabilize me a little like throughout this kind of mental chaos. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause I, I feel like just like maybe the kind of the privileged location that we all operate on on Twitter. But like, I just feel like every day I'm seeing people selling books the little like Publishers Weekly screenshot, right? And like, then you get like the book cover reveal and then you get like the box full of galleys and like, there's kind of this like sort of um, pat response at this point. Like we know what happens next and then what happens after that and then what happens after that. And then there's the book tour and the reviews and then there's like the panning and then there's the like arguments online about it. So like, I, you you must be at least like somewhat prepared for all of that. Oh <laughs> uh, man, I, I maybe have not to... mentally, but like you're aware of it. Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> definitely aware of it. You know, as you say, the the beats of like how this whole thing goes is are very familiar to me. You know, like there's a drumbeat of publicity, then it comes out, and then you know responses can just run the gamut, and you have to be prepared for all of that. You know, um, I think that what feels scary right now is the fact that. I am a freelancer, I live alone, you know, I work alone, and so this whole experience is so isolating. Um, and so I think what's really important to me is to make sure that I have a small clan of folks um, who, you know, um, affirm me and, you know, want to make sure that I am, you know, doing the best job I can and everything like that and making sure that I feel, you know, good about myself and everything like that. Uh, you know, I want to make sure I have them with me and keep them with me throughout this whole ride because it's going to probably be very tough because you are just exposed to the public in a way that, you know, you um, are not as just a writer of articles online, you know, uh, and oof, ah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm obviously nervous, um, but um, I think I'll survive. So. <laughs> I, you know, I really do hope that you get to have a physical IRL book tour because I think being able to meet your readers and your fans is probably going to be a, a grounding experience. I, I hope so, too. You know, um, fingers crossed that, you know, vaccinations just, uh, you know, America gets its shit together in terms of vaccinations. So we can, you know, have a book tour this fall. Totally. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know. But I hope that people also um, see me in real life and know that I'm a little more self-effacing and like, you know, this small shy person as opposed to whatever I come across, you know, as on the page, because I don't know, I, I maybe there's something that's lost in translation there. <laughs> it was so much fun to talk to you and to catch up. I am really excited to pick up your book at the end of the year. Um, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, so um, on Twitter, I am Senator Mayuk, that's S-E-N-A-T-O-R-M-A-Y-U-K-H, and on Instagram, I am mayuk.sen, so M-A-Y-U-K-H dot S-E-N. Uh, my website's also there, and you can pre-order my book from my publisher, W.W. Norton and Company, IndieBound Bookshop, or Amazon, but, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, try, try the other ones. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much, Nadia. It was so nice to catch up with you and talk. Hey, listeners. 
Before we end the episode and the season, I wanted to thank you for listening to us and for coming with us on our move to Erios. Aziz, Jivika, and I really appreciate you all who tune in for every episode, who rate and review the pod, and subscribe, of course. And I know a lot of people say this, but we really couldn't have done it without you, especially during the pandemic. I'm excited to catch up with you all again next season. Talk soon. The Cardamom Pod is made by Kajal Magazine in partnership with Erios Network. Aziz Adib is our producer with help from Jivika Verma. Our music is by Tasneem from their EP, Just Before the World Ends. Until next time, keep an eye out for evil eyes. Powered by ACAST.